Welcome to the Relentless Pursuit Podcast. A great task remains, and we all have a role we can play. But what do we do with the questions we have about missions, about walking with God, about ourselves? Well, here's a space for us to wrestle and discover together. We don't have to have it all figured out to take our next step. I must say, y'all, today is a real treat for me, and I know it will be for you too. Today, you will hear from Steve Richardson, the president of Pioneers USA. Steve will share his upbringing with us and how he stepped into his current role, but the legacy of his family, as well as his wife, Arlene, is something we're celebrating, and I'm so glad you've tuned in today. People often wonder if Pioneers is a family business, and I think today's episode will answer your questions perfectly. So listen in to my interview with Steve Richardson. Steve, it really is an honor to have you here today. I hope you know that I'm very excited for our phone call today. Thank you, Emily. It's great to be with you. Oh, man. I've actually had the chance to hear your story a couple times. And truthfully, every time it is just as exciting to me as the first time I heard it. I am so excited to ask you some questions today. Um, I want to jump right in, actually. I, I I want to zoom in kind of at your college years. I know a lot happened for you around the college age time, um, but but can you catch us up to speed? Can you bring us up to speed rather um, to get us to that point of kind of what happened in your childhood that got you there? You know, answering that question, sometimes I just feel like I have to pinch myself. Is this really real? <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I've been sitting on an airplane sometimes and people ask, so tell me more about your background. And I start sharing details and they start thinking I'm you know, pulling one over on them. But essentially grew up, you know, in a tribe of cannibal headhunters in the southern swamps of the world's second largest island, New Guinea. That is not something you hear every day, Steve. (laughs) It's a pretty rare story. It is. Especially in our generation. But I, I, I grew up there actually speaking the local language, the Sawi language, at least for my first few years better than I spoke English because only mom and dad spoke English. Wow. And my brothers, when they came along and all my friends, all the people around us spoke a different language. So, you know, playing with my dugout canoe, hunting snakes and lizards in the grass and just a, a jungle life. It was, it was an amazing way to grow up. Wow. And your folks were serving there. I mean, they were, they were missionaries at the time was what brought them there in the first place. Exactly. Okay. And so I was I was six months old when my parents and I uh, first, and these people had never encountered the outside world before, except maybe to hear an airplane going over high in the sky and wondering what kind of evil spirit that was. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, they, this was the first time they'd ever seen, you know, these pale, sickly looking creatures from the outside world. Oh, yeah. So interesting, man, to be a fly on the wall to see that first encounter. Um, for them. that That's amazing. Well, I, what you just said is no small thing, Steve, and I wish we had a whole episode <laughs> devoted to your entire childhood. Um, but that's just a bit of context for everyone listening today of um, kind of how Steve's uh, career got started was actually boots on the ground, even as a six-month-old. So now can you drop us in at a point where you're in college? I know there was a moment for you when you were on a summer trip or something and you were going for a run and there was just a moment that happened. Right. So Maybe a little bit of additional uh, background there. So, so I had a front row seat to seeing the power of the gospel in a completely unreached people group, and I I grew up 
participating in my parents' ministry. Right. I, was, I wasn't just a, a spectator. Uh, and so I started praying, Lord, what, what piece of this puzzle, what part of the picture do you want me to play? Uh, because I love it. Yeah. And it's yeah. real. You know, this isn't just theory. I've, I've, seen, I've seen God's power in action. So, you know, when I was, actually when I was 10, I was at a Christian camp on one of our rare visits to North America. And I, re- I sensed a powerful call of God on my own life to walk through every open door I could find toward becoming strategically involved myself in the task of seeing the gospel uh, proclaimed around the world. Then, as you're mentioning, you know, fast forward to college, as part of that discernment journey that any disciple is on mm, yeah. to discover God's will for their lives, I took a short-term mission trip back to Southeast Asia, back to the jungle, but on the way, stopped in one of the major cities of the world, 12 million people. We were just there one night. The next morning with jet lag, I got up early to go jogging on the streets of that city. And I have to say, I didn't get any exercise that morning because thousands of people were putting out their fruits and other things to sell. And there was no you know, safe place to actually run. <laughs> sure. But what I did get was a question in my mind, in my heart, from God, who are all these people? And is anybody reaching them with the gospel? And that question, as thousands of people, I was just exposed. It's another part of the same country I grew up in, actually. But, you know, 180 degrees difference. It wasn't a small, isolated jungle tribe. This was a city teeming with millions of Muslim men and women and children. And, you know, the answer to that question, who are these people? And maybe this is what God is intending for me on this en route, you know, back to the jungle was the answer. So that 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 was it. And that's where that's where I ended up eventually with, with my wife Arlene. Wow. If there were ever just a plug that anyone could make for why do summer trips matter, um, I feel like that's it. It's just it gave you perspective. You saw something you never seen before and it was just this radical shift in your own life, all because of just a quick summer trip that seems like a blip on the radar, you know, afterwards. But it was such a big deal. So gosh, if anyone listening today is debating going on a summer trip, um, perhaps <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, okay, so you were in college, you were given such clear direction from the Lord um, out of his his graciousness. And then he crossed your paths with someone very important to your story. Um, can we hear a little bit more about how you met Arlene? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, ever since that early sense of God's calling, uh, one of my prayers was, Lord, uh, just arrange the pieces of my life according to your superior, perfect, surprising plan. Yeah. And, you know, whether that's the choice for college or increasingly, as I was praying, Lord, who's the companion that you might have for me on this life's mission? I uh, started praying that early. And here I was, a senior in high school, and my dad came back from one of, one of his frequent two or three week speaking tours. And as he walked in the door there in Pasadena, California, he said, Steve, I found a young lady that I think would be perfect for you. And I just, <laughs> As a I senior just, in high school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I thought to myself, and I said to him, Dad, isn't this a bit premature? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he'd piqued my interest, obviously. And I said, so tell me at least a little bit more. Yeah. And uh, I said, where is she? And he, 
he said, well, she's over in Washington, D.C. area. And I said, how did he, how did you meet her? He said, well, I was speaking at a mission conference and had lunch with her and a few other students. And then she invited me to their home. And it's just a wonderful family. And they, they really have a heart for God and for his global cause. And I just, you know, I said, is she beautiful? <laughs> he said, yes. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, Dad, you had pretty good instincts with mom. So it's at least worth a try. So, so I, wrote, I wrote Arlene uh, a letter on some of my father's fancy stationery that had all these tribal heads at the on the on the letterhead. <laughs> so with, intimidating. You know, with bo- yeah, bones through their noses and oh yeah, headdresses and so forth. And I thought if she responds to this, <laughs> she's a winner. Positively, that'll be another indicator, <laughs> right? Exactly. So we became pen pals, and uh, and there's a whole lot more fun stuff to that story. But oh, eventually, we just yeah. we just said, you know. We're in this together, and it's been a wonderful ride ever since. Oh, my word. Pen pals from California to D.C. Basically Such an arranged a, marriage, Mel- yeah. Emily. You know, about <laughs> as close as you get to it, you know, in yeah, our culture. Yeah, here in America, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. If anyone, gosh, has had the chance to meet Arlene, she is just as golden as Steve says she is. So uh, she was certainly the right companion for the journey. So as you and Arlene got together, and obviously God had given you both such an individual vision of of the nations, of, of God's glory being known among the nations as such young people too. So now you're married and now it's time to discern. I think um, a lot of this season on the podcast, we've talked a lot about discernment. I think it's a big deal. I mean, it, I think it seems like a big deal. And so we want to know more about it. And so for you and Arlene, um, how did you discern? What was the discernment process of where might you, um, where might your life be of service to the Lord? You know, I think Emily that sometimes God makes things very clear. You know, He spoke yeah. to Jonah, go to Nineveh. He made it clear for Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, I was reading about Joseph's four dreams in Matthew one and two mm. uh, yesterday. But there are many times when, you know, he's, he's, he's shown us the big picture of our call to him and our call to his mission. But I found myself wrestling with, okay, in this big world of opportunities, you know, where do you want me to go? And Arlene was praying the same prayer. And I found that one very uh, helpful and encouraging perspective is the convergence of God speaking in multiple ways to confirm a particular path or journey. And uh, let me give you a quick little story to illustrate that. So Please do, yeah. I was getting my hair cut in the men's dormitory at the Christian college that I was attending. And this is when Arlene and I were engaged and we were both praying about future directions because we didn't know, should we go to Central Asia that was just opening up? Mm, uh, okay. You know, we had a heart for the the Muslim world, but didn't, didn't know exactly where to go. And there was this guy that was, you know, kind of cleaning around us, doing his college service, we called it. And I said, hey, Mike, I heard you're from this country in Southeast Asia. And he said, yes, I am. I said, have you ever heard of the Kantoli people group? And he said, yes. And I was starting to realize he's a man of few words. <laughs> And I said, can you tell me more about them? Have you ever seen any? And he said, yes. And he said, my parents are the only people who've been working with them. There's about 30 million of them. No way. This guy cutting your hair. Yeah. (laughs) And and this is the people group 
that I had been exposed to that morning jogging in that major city. Oh and and here and here this fellow college student uh, was telling me that his parents were the only people trying to reach this people group with the gospel. Uh. And so I, I, I developed a friendship, obviously, with him. And then with his parents, Arlene and I visited them in Virginia on one of the occasions when they were in the U.S. So all this to say, God started putting the pieces in place. Uh, pioneers, as it was getting started at that stage, sure, and, yeah. and that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but the board actually adopted this particular people group. And when we realized that, that was another piece of the puzzle. And, uh, you know, our sending church got involved affirming that. So it just felt like God was clarifying. And maybe I can say this by way of kind of a bow on this particular package. And that is, I find it liberating to know that it's not my primary responsibility to figure out God's will for my life. It's his primary responsibility to lead me according to his plan. All I have to do, the primary things I have to do is, number one, be available, and number two, be listening. Mm. Because if I'm not available and I'm, I'm not listening, then I'm, I'm going to miss, miss out on his, his uh, superior plan. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you shared with just the kind of that one-two punch there. It's available and listening. Uh, I think there's a lot there that obviously we could have a whole other episode about. What does it mean to be available? Um, What does it mean to be listening to the Lord, to know his voice? Um, Okay, so you and Arlene now are just stoking the flames. Well, God's stoking the flames. You and Arlene are just, I guess, witnesses to it. But um, things are progressing now about you getting to know where you're going to go and the partnerships you're making. It's all so divine from God. And then now it's time to go. Uh, so were you and Arlene willing to go at it alone or were you praying for people to go with you or how did that work at the time with pioneers? I don't really, uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> can you tell me yeah, more about that? We, we, uh, we really wanted to go with fellow workers as a team and not, not try to pull off. I mean, imagine, imagine an assignment where it's your job to ignite the fires of gospel blessing to, see disciples made and the beginnings of a church planting process for the whole state of California or for all of Canada. I mean, that's that's the population we're talking about of this, yeah. this the particular unreached people group. Basically, you could take the whole population of the eastern seaboard of the U.S., put them on an island about the shape of te- the state of Tennessee, and that's the island uh, that these people live on. Oh, good grief. And there, there's two major people groups. There's another one even larger. So, uh, yeah, we started praying, Emily, and we had we there were we had fellow students, other young couples cuz Arlene and I got married when we were about 22. And uh and we just started praying with our friends. Uh we loved our relationships, and I think that's another way that God leads is through relationships. Uh the kingdom of God is a relational network. Mm. So we started praying, and four of us couples uh, covenanted together to go and reach, be God's instruments to help reach this particular people group with the gospel. Yeah. Uh, and before we left, uh, not only did we spend time really strengthening our relationship with you know our churches and mobilizing a group of prayer warriors and supporters for the journey, because we knew it was going to be tough, but we also... Uh, mobilized quite a few other people. So before long, we actually, our team out there actually ended up being about 45 adults. Wow. 
it was an unusually large team and it was fantastic. Oh, completely. I feel like even now that would seem kind of rare to to kind of go at it all at once and then to be able to recruit up to 45 adults to be on your team. That's incredible. Yeah. It, it was so big that we actually formed sub-teams. Sure. And these, these sub-teams yeah. started focusing on different strategic aspects of what it would take to see that people group reached. Oh, I love it. I and mean, I want to hear more about that too, because I know that the strategy to go at this would have been... Um, such a prayerful approach. I mean, I, I know that it was something that y'all worked hard on. Before we get there, though, uh, you mentioned a second ago about the beginnings of Pioneers. And for anyone who is maybe new to the org or they are getting to know maybe who Pioneers is, um, there is a very, very sweet beginning. So can you give us a brief history of how it got started? Yeah. Uh, and and that's a fun aspect of oh, our, sure. our courtship story, actually, yeah. because, you know, when my dad came back, you know, back when I was in high school, what he later explained was that Arlene's family, her parents, were actually starting a, mi- a ministry in their home. And that uh, fledgling ministry being launched in her family's home at that time is what later became Pioneers. And her father was you know, successful uh, marketplace you know, businessman on Wall Street. But he'd come to Christ as a Marine in the Korean War, had a growing heart for God and for the world, especially unreached people groups around the world. And he and his wife uh, had stepped out around that time by faith, four kids still needing to go through college, his fellow Business people said, you're crazy, Ted, and uh, it didn't make sense to them. But this was one of the surprises in their lives. And their seed of faith and obedience, uh, first sending out some short-termers to various parts of the world who then came back and wanted to go long-term, became the foundation for an organization that today is blessing literally about 500 unreached people groups in more than a hundred countries around the world. Oh and my God, gosh, I have God, chills, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I, I do too. I do too. Oh. And, 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 you know, again, I think a part of a theme that's coming out as I'm just reflecting here with you is God's surprising ways and his superior ways. Yeah. And here God chose a businessman and his wife to launch a mission organization that today is, you know, one of the one of the leading influential mission organizations in the world. And people said, you're not qualified. You know, you don't have mission experience yourself. So that was that was pretty cool. And and I, you know, I've just had the joy of riding, you know, being one of the surfers on that divine wave. Oh, it's incredible. And for anyone who has the chance to visit the Pioneers headquarters here in Orlando, there is an entire, what we call a ring, kind of in the lobby there. It's this these displays that are set up in a circle where you can read about the history of Pioneers. You can read more about Ted and Peggy and their family, and you can actually see Ted's Bible in display case. And it's just, I could walk around that ring for hours. It's so encouraging to see how, uh, I've heard you call it before, Steve, like a mom and pop startup. Um, back in the, what was that, 70s, 80s, maybe? Yeah, the late 70s. It, it really, for me personally, you know, I think of it as buying stock in a, yeah, an yeah. untested startup company that God blessed over Definitely. time because of, you know, his people's trust and faithfulness. I love that. And you mentioned that it was a seed of faith that 
that God had planted and that um, Ted was obedient to. And now I love thinking that what was now what is now built upon such a mustard seed of faith is become such a flourishing, um, I guess, forest, if you will, from a seed. Yes. Um, and now we get to see just God's glory. Uh, I could go on and on, but that was helpful. Thank you for the brief history for us. Um, okay, now I want to jump back in now because – I'm dying to know now what happens when you and Arlene, you're married, you have some some uh, others who are going to go with you. You're going to launch to Southeast Asia. And I know that there is much victory to be celebrated here in a little bit of hearing about the strategy and, and the work that went into um, working among that people. But I also know that there was much trial and, and uh, opposition that you faced at the beginning. So what were some of the um, opposing factors of your time when you first got there? You know, the reason these people groups, some of which are relatively small, many of which are actually huge all around the world, are still unreached is because these are very difficult challenges. Mm. And uh, one of our mentors mentioned to us early on in our time in that arena, his words were, this is the most difficult world work in the world. And I thought to myself, wow, more difficult than putting people on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, these these people groups, these whole societies, whole worldviews separated from gospel truth by grand canyons of historical, cultural, religious, linguistic, social, economic distance. I mean, God set up a massive challenge for himself, and it's in the crossing of those Grand Canyons that he is going to be magnificently glorified when mm -hmm. the story is told. So, you know, in our specific case, how do you reach 30 million with the gospel? And yeah, we did. We plunged in. First of all, we couldn't, they weren't handing out missionary visas. We didn't feel that that meant we shouldn't come. And so I, I actually went as a student at a state university, got a scholarship to university. Oh, wow. My, my task was to study the language and Islamic history in the country uh, there at the university, you know, being wow, that's Im incredible. immersed with students. And then, you know, as the team grew, all kinds of things happened. I mean, there were an unusual number of miscarriages. Uh, so many people hadn't survived. So many people who came with good intentions prior to our team's arrival. Uh, we had teammates poisoned. We had curses placed on us. We had we had two fellow workers who actually died, mm. one from disease, another one, their gas can in their kitchen blew up unexpe unexpectedly. We had, a, we had a fellow worker who was stabbed. You know, I, I could tell you some pretty, pretty dramatic oh, stories. Word. My intention isn't to over-dramatize or to scare anybody, but just to say this this is a real, this is venturing into, spiritually speaking, enemy territory. Yeah. And, you know, the enemy isn't going to yield those societies without a fight. That's and right. we experienced yeah. that as a team, but praise God, you know. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. Oh, man. I, I feel like so far, too, this season, for every story we've heard from our guests, um, every single one is filled with opposition. And it's just this anthem to me of 
it's not an if, but when. I mean, when you face opposition, especially within a work where you said there's going to naturally be an enemy um, that is completely opposed to the work of the gospel going forward. So it just makes sense that you'd prepare your heart, your team, your mind, your soul, everything about you um, to be completely prepared as if you're putting on the armor, you know, each time that you would encounter um, this opposition. So I just feel like I don't know if there's anyone who would be considering uh, a work like this where they would want to impact, uh, have global impact among the unreached, that having this opposition as a factor shouldn't necessarily be something that could take you out or rather um, keep you from from going or keep you from obeying. Because it sounds like it's kind of expected that there would be um, just great opposition. But like you said, not to over-dramatize it or make it be, you know, so much to where it's only few can can make it, but just that, um, I don't know, I feel like there's just so much there. there there's treasure there on the other side of that opposition, so, the glory. Emily, oh. I totally agree with you. And, you know, Paul comments in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, a great door of opportunity has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Hmm. And, yeah. and we need to expect that the two go together. The opposition and the opportunity always go together. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Well, I'm, I, well, I, for one, I'm glad that your team was able to persevere um, despite such challenges and, and so much heartache. I know it came with that, too. Um I want to hear a little bit more about, you mentioned earlier that there was a lot of strategy that went into, well, for lack of a better word, pioneering, I guess, this area, this this um, this nation of people. And so can you tell us a little bit about the strategy that goes into, like you said, I don't know, you, you worded it earlier, something like, how do you influence or how do you share the gospel among 3 million people or however you worded that, 30 million people? Right. So picture yourself in a situation, you know, I mentioned the analogy of California or Canada, but suppose you're in a stadium with tens of thousands of people, and only one or two of the people in that stadium are believers who, who follow Jesus. And if there's two or three of them, each one doesn't know who the other one is. Right. And so that's really the situation we found ourselves in a place where there are 30,000 mosques. And we asked ourselves the question, okay, Lord, how would you have us maximize our loaves and fishes to see this people group impacted uh, on a big scale as rapidly as as we can uh, for your glory. And we realize that, you know, a lot of organizations, they specialize in this or that, you know, maybe it's in, at that time, you know, there were radio organizations, broadcasters, right, right. gospel recordings, putting the gospel on tape. You know, and you have student ministries and so forth. And as a team, what we discerned in prayer was what we want to do is we want to synergistically mobilize the body of Christ to maximize uh, our gospel footprint among this particular people group. Now, here's the situation. Uh, very few people had ever come to the Lord, been saved. And when they did, those those believers that what few churches had been established tended, because of persecution, to disappear after a while. Oh wow! And we realized that you know to be a member of that Kantoli people group, it was just assumed you had to be Muslim. Okay. So our goal was to actually kind of uh, change that perception. 
And we started harnessing over time, even digital media and all kinds of other strategies, the arts, music, uh, uh, reaching out with health ministries. One night I had a vision for a magazine in the Kantoli language because there were only like two publications in a language spoken by 30 million people. Yeah. And uh, over time, these ministries all working in harmony, complementing one another with a growing number of people harnessing their special gifts, whether it's in media or, you know, helping people develop skills in microenterprise, like my wife and others did, ended up providing the foundation for a growing movement of multiplying churches among the Cantoli people. It was just thrilling. Oh, man. I don't even know what to say. I, gosh, I just think that even with the resources that you had, so this would have been in 86, 87 when you had first launched to Southeast Asia, correct? Yeah, starting in the mid-80s and then on through the 90s. Yeah, so using the resources that you had at that point with, the, like you said, the radio ministry and then, of course, publications, different things. I mean, there just was no, well, from what I'm hearing now, it sounds like you were willing to face any barrier with that. You were willing to use the resources you had. You were you were willing to um, to press on, I guess, in that culture for just to see it be transformed. Um, and I've heard you call it something specific, this type of strategy oh. of, of, of work. Um, can you tell us more about that? Well, yeah. We, we actually called our strategy Lampstand. And it was based on a couple of passages in the Gospels where Jesus says, you don't light a lamp or a candle and hide it under a basket. You put it on a stand so that everyone in the room can benefit from its light. Mm. So if you had asked a Contoli person when we first arrived, is there such a thing as a Contoli Christian or follower of Jesus? They would have said, no, no, we're, we're all Muslim. If you were to ask virtually any Contoli person today, and now they're not 30 million, they're 40 million. So if you asked virtually any one of those 40 million people today, is there such a thing as a Contoli follower of Jesus? They would say, oh, yeah, there are. There are. And they, they now oh, view it wow. as an option. It's not and off the table a, anymore. This is a 30, 40 year difference of time. Well, oh, I say exactly. only. <laughs> exactly. It's a long time, but Yeah. To us it seems like a long time. Yeah. But in, in the scope of redemptive history, things are accelerating at a tremendous pace all around the world. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, I can't even picture that. Like for now, I mean I'm almost thirty, so picture my I'm trying to picture myself saying as a two year old or three year old, like, oh yeah. There's no Christians that I know, or I get that as a bad example. A two-year-old wouldn't know. But just the point I'm making is that even fast-forwarding in my own lifetime to be able to say, no, I, I know several Christians, or, or rather, you can be a Christian um, right. where I'm right. from. And so I just, yeah, I can't hardly get my head around that, but it's incredible. Your team was incredibly faithful to the gospel. And now, as a result, there's a nation of people that are aware of they are aware. Yeah. They, they are actually starting to think of the Christians as being the preservers of their own language and their culture. Oh, really? Rather than being a threat. Because everything they see uh, through the lives of the small but growing community of Christ followers is culturally contextualized. It's beautiful. It's compelling. It's authentic. And uh, it's stewarding the best of what their culture has to offer. And they're just thrilled. Oh, I can't even believe that. I mean, that's, that is amazing because I think a lot of what I've been hearing lately is that 
um, there would be such it, it would be such a threat for someone of such national pride and culture to be transformed into a Christian because then it would take away from the beauty or the purity of of the natural language and culture and people. And so to hear that that's just completely rocked um, at this within this nation, this people group, I'm just I'm floored. <laughs> it's incredible. So, so Emily. Um... You know, so many of us think in terms of our personal testimony of, of leading an individual or a family to Christ, which is so important and mm-hmm. so crucial. And that was a part of our ministry. But I guess part of my heart and, you know, our, our vision organizationally is to really think strategically about how we as a North American church and as believers from the, from the U.S. and the West what is our best contribution and how can we help strategically advance the cause of Christ in uh, many of these parts of the world have, who, that have had such little, so little opportunity to hear the gospel? Yeah. I, I know that from there, there was about 10 years maybe that you, that you spent as a team. You and Arlene, your family, were there for about 10 years. But then I know that obviously things changed because now you're here. So can you fill us in or catch us up to what happened and maybe what God put on your heart that had you relocate? Sure. Uh, our team had grown and many, some of them are still there today, you know, decades later. Oh, wow. Yeah. But we, we sensed through, again, a convergence of circumstances and opportunities uh, that God was leading us into a new chapter of giving the privilege that we had enjoyed of being catalysts for gospel proclamation and unreached people groups to more and more people. In other words, to help mobilize more and more people into the, into the harvest. And the first step in that was uh, there were a number of organizations in Australia and New Zealand that were excited about banding together to become part of a global network, uh, which today is the international picture of, of pioneers. And they asked us to come and, and relocate. I never thought I would live in Australia. <laughs> it's another one of God's many surprises. And so we spent a couple of years there helping to organize uh, pioneers in Australia and New Zealand. And those ministries are just flourishing today. Uh, and then came back to the U.S. fully intending to return to that location in Southeast Asia where we'd been serving. But just as we were preparing to return, the leadership of pioneers here in the U.S., tapped us on the shoulder and said, hey, Steve and Arlene, would you be willing to consider staying here in the U.S., helping to provide leadership for Pioneers U.S., and uh, helping to mobilize hundreds, if not thousands, more laborers for church planting work among the least reached? And it was another one of those thresholds in my personal life where I felt God was speaking very clearly. Mm. There wasn't any doubt in my mind at that point, that this this was God saying, here's the way, walk in it. And Arlene and I, you know, I remember the one of the first thoughts that went through our, our minds was, oh, no, now our four daughters who were born in Indonesia, who speak the language there, are going to have to grow up in America. Yeah, wow. That's a good point. It wasn't just you and Arlene that would be impacted by that. Your kids would now have such a totally different upbringing um, going from Southeast Asia to America. That's such a good point. Uh, this is incredible to me because, I mean, if you rewind, it's the beginning of our episode today. 
you were speaking so fervently and, and God had given you such a vision for specifically being someone who um, would go and, and could have, could experience and see global impact from the proclamation of the gospel among unreached peoples. And so now it's just incredible because God has been so um, sovereign, or I guess he has had such authority over your life in such a, um, a blessing of a way to where now your vision, your heart has shifted to now I want to see many people be sent. And I, I want to help. I want to invite others into what God has invited me to. So now I want to be a mobilizer. And that word might sound kind of strange or, or maybe um, maybe too specific for people to have a ton of context around it. So can you give a bit more insight into what is mobilization? What is the How does the role shift now of perhaps being someone who's boots on the ground and, and serving and working among unreached peoples to becoming a mobilizer? Not that those two can't be the same. I mean, obviously they could be, but um, could you bring some definition around that? You know, as believers, a fundamental assumption that unfortunately quite a few people lack is that God has given us a mission. And that mission is to see his glory through the gospel manifest in the whole world without exception. So then the question arises, what's my best contribution to that Mm -hmm. picture? And God has wired each one of us differently. You know, I mentioned the puzzle idea earlier. And each piece of a puzzle is small. It's unique. And it's significant. You know, have you ever gotten to the end of a puzzle, putting a puzzle together and there's a piece missing? It's oh, like, it's oh, the living no. worst. Yeah. yeah. So to me, mobilization is the constant realignment of my own life, my own spirit, my own consciousness to, the, to answering the question, uh, what is my best contribution and it is not just what I can do, but it is how can I equip mm-hmm. my fellow believers, fellow pilgrims on the journey, so that they can also make their best contribution. And if, you know, Arlene and I would love to still be in Southeast Asia, we go back and visit there as well as other yeah, parts of the world as often right. as we can. It, it, for us, the sacrifice wasn't leaving America. For us, the sacrifice has been returning to America. Mm -hmm. But the sacrifice is worth it. Either way, either direction, God is calling us so that we can help plant seeds, help ignite little fires of understanding and of participation so that more and more people can participate in the Great Commission. And you know what? A fun thing, Emily, is to just consider everybody can do that. Yeah. We can all pray, and I think prayer is one of the is, is perhaps the most strategic thing that every individual can do. Yes, yeah. we can all mobilize. No matter where you are, you can mobilize people for God's mission, and I love that. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you said that. I think a big theme um, within this podcast has been that um, there is no one counted out of being able to join and be invited in what God is doing. Um, in any capacity, everyone's invited to participate. And so uh, I'm glad you, you said that and spoke that, that blessing over us. Um, 
I, for one, am terribly thankful that you and Arlene have been so open-handed with your life. As a result, um, there has been such a ministry, such a movement that has even just spurred right here in Orlando and and has gone so far beyond that. And so I'm very thankful for your um, being a director here and and um, overseeing the, the whole organization here in America. So thank you. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I'm also very privileged to be able to work um, I'm within the pioneers family too. It's, it's a great gig. Um, to send us out, Steve, can I hear a little bit about, um, kind of throughout this time that you've been, of course, the U S director here for pioneers. And then of course, before that, um, I've heard you mention before that there's an aspect of God's character that you've seen as he's led you through a sequence of kind of divine events. And there's something that there's like, a, like an element to God's character that has been such a, um, a gift to you. Can you can you tell us more about that? Not to set you up so specifically, but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I started realizing, Emily. I think this is what you're referring to. Uh, so not too long ago, that you know what? As a culture, especially in the West, almost everything is organized around predict, trying to predict everything. We try to predict the weather. We want to predict what each hour of the day is going to hold. Uh, you know, we want to plan for our retirement. These are not bad things. Uh, these are good things. But our whole ethos is organized around predicting. And then I realized, you know, in the scriptures, virtually every page of scripture and every episode, you know, from the Garden of Eden to Abram being called, to Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery and becoming the prime minister of Egypt, to Esther becoming the queen of an empire all the way through the New Testament, is packed with surprise. And so God, part of God's nature is he's the God who surprises. Now, obviously, he plans everything. You know, he's running the universe, the cosmos, but he surprises us and he delights in surprising us. And so my task and yours is to pray a prayer that I've been praying more and more as life goes by. And that is, Lord, surprise me with your superior plan. Hmm. Lord, surprise me with it, whether that's today or this year or in this next chapter of my life. Lord, please surprise me with your superior plan. And I just wait to see what's going to happen. You know, and whether it's this episode of the podcast or whatever happens, it's like, Lord, this is my modern day offering sacrifice of praise to you and use it according to your good pleasure. So that to me is, is kind of a cool, it's a cool paradigm through which to view life that kind of frees us up from feeling like we have to control and predict Hmm. you know, so much of our lives. It's just not meant to be that way. Oh, I agree. As you were speaking, I had this visual of just, it's, it is this sweet release. I pictured someone's shoulders just kind of dropping out of relief of, man, I, God has been so kind to, to give us the element of his surprise, not in a sense of that it will harm you or it will scare you, but in the sense of uh, it is, it can be so divine to watch um, the Lord just unfold before. And, and, and it's exciting too, to think that God is alive. He is real. He is here. And so for him to be able to surprise you, I feel like is such an element of just, it's a thrill to walk with God. It's a thrill to see what's next and be prepared for it. Um, 
in your life, Steve, has certainly been such a an illustration, I feel like, of that element of God's character. Um, yeah, thanks, you... Emily. I, I really view life as a great, grand adventure with God. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to even get to know all the people who will hear this story and for them to realize that they are also um, walking throughout an incredible journey with God, and there is so much to come as they follow him and trust him. Um, Steve, thank you for your time. Honestly, I know you you have uh, great things on your plate and you made time for this and I it means a lot to us. And so, um, yeah, I can't wait for everyone to get to hear your story. Wonderful. Thank you, Emily. And God bless you and everybody who's listening. Thanks for listening to Steve's story. I hope you enjoyed it like I did. Did you know Pioneers has another podcast in addition to this one? It's called the Maverick Podcast, and while this podcast follows the lives of several missionaries from the field, the Maverick Podcast follows the story of one Muslim man living in Central Africa and sounds more like a true crime storyline. It's thrilling and encouraging, and each episode is only 20 minutes, so perfect for any commute or meal prep. So after you rate and review this podcast, hop over to the Maverick Podcast and enjoy Bashara's story.